You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We've got a dick-heavy show for you today. A lot of heavy dick issues. We've got a researcher here for a What You Got. It's been too long since we had a What You Got. We have a researcher here for a What You Got about condoms and sensitivity. Really interesting conversation. And we have a writer, Mike Pearl from Vice, here to talk about something that I have in the past and I shall no longer call death grip syndrome. That's coming up on today's show. And I'm thinking about dicks because we got a dick-heavy show. So this is your... Trigger warning, if you don't like to think about dicks, this is your digger warning, your dicker warning. Consider yourself dicker warned. This is a dick-heavy show. I'm a gay dude, and like we're all about the dicks. I don't know if you guys know that. I actually am coming out that I'm, I'm a gay dude. I don't know if I've ever told you. I've ever shared that with you, that secret part of my life. Gay. And there's kind of two kinds of gay guys in the world. You know, There are many ways you can divide the gay world up, and this is one way to divide the gay world up into two distinct kind of gay guys. There are, I've always affectionately called them cock hounds. Nothing wrong with that. I love having my cock hounded after, personally. And then there are guys who, like, dick is part of it, but dick ain't it all by itself, right? The dick has to be attached to something compelling, that the dick all by its lonesome isn't going to work. So, for instance... A glory hole, whether it's in a gay bathhouse or sex club or in a truck stop or whether someone's improvising in a confessional booth in a Catholic church, just a dick popped through the hole in the wall. I don't get it. I don't want to touch it with anything, least of all my mouth. Maybe I'd slap it with a hymnal if it happened in a confessional booth. But there are people out there who a dick can be beautiful and gorgeous all by its lonesome and they are cockhounds like they're after they, they love the dick and a dick can be all alone so lovely and gorgeous that they'll do that dick irrespective of whatever else that dick might be attached to because you know when a dick is popped through a hole in the wall that could be a sitting homophobic u.s senator on the other side of that wall or a catholic archbishop on the other side of that wall or your dad how horrible is that to contemplate sometimes i sit up at night wondering worrying about how many people have accidentally blown their fathers in truck stop bathrooms in particularly homophobic and repressive parts of the country over the years. Because if all you're after is that dick through the hole in the wall and you don't verify who's in the other stall and you both live in the same general area, it could happen. It's never happened to me because I always look at the dude. That comes first, in my opinion. I'm not interested in your dick unless I'm interested in you. And that's that non-cockhound kind of cocksucker gay guy. Like the whole person and the dick, not just the dick and then the rest of the person to be named later. There are other people out there like that too. I've known lady friends who are cockhounds and my hat is off to them. Here's to the cockhounds. I guess this intro is my way of saying two things. First, I have dick on the brain and more so than usual as a gay dude because we have a very dick-heavy show for you today, but also because I'm on vacation. You always know when I'm recording these things well in advance because I usually can't resist current events. There was last week a Republican debate and I cannot comment on it because I am not here. 
Hello, people of the future. You can comment on the Republican debate that happened last week. I can't because I am recording this in advance because I am off somewhere with my husband where I promise you I am hounding him for all sorts of things. His time, his attention, his focus, his dick and everything attached to it. I'm fond of it. Fond of him. But I would never leave you guys without a new Savage Lovecast. We bust one of these out every week, whether I'm on vacation, whether Nancy's away on vacation, whether the tech-savvy at-risk youth are fully conscious or not. We create one of these shows for you guys every week, and we banked this one for you, and we banked this intro. And we're happy to have you. Thank you for listening. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a nice week. Wherever you are, I hope you found someone interesting and smart to talk to about the Republican national debate. I'm certain that next week when I get back, we're going to be talking about whatever those motherfuckers said. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old man from a large Midwestern city here. Uh, my girlfriend just told me that she is a lesbian a few nights ago. I'm not surprised. Uh, I think there have been a lot of doubts for me that have been floating around in our relationship. Uh, also, um, I'm bisexual. She was identifying as bisexual, and that was a big component of our relationship. Um, when we first got together, we've been together for about two and a half years, and uh, she was very supportive of me, kind of figuring that out. Anyway, uh, I'm still in love with her, and she says that she's also still in love with me, but it's very clear that you know our relationship's not going to work. I've been pretty sexually frustrated for a while. She's also going through a really rough time. She's caring for a sick family member. She's the main person who's able to care for this family member, um, and she doesn't have a lot of support in that. Uh, we live together. We're really close. We're best friends. I'm really excited and happy for her to be who she really is, to kind of figure this part of herself out and kind of move forward with her life. Uh, I'm also excited to find somebody who can uh, you know, meet my needs. I also want to continue our friendship and be supportive of her while she's going through this really rough time. I'm afraid of creating an unhealthy dependence for each other. Uh, for me, I'm afraid of, like, I guess staying in denial that this is really happening or, and trying to kind of stay close to her. And, and I'm afraid of her being too reliant on me. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to Kind of set some healthy boundaries here, I guess. Unless there's some bottled up rage or resentment that you didn't express or share with us, I don't see what the problem here really is. You did mention at one point, as an aside, that you were sexually frustrated for a very long time. And so maybe I'm thinking there might be some bottled up rage or resentment there because you guys were together and she was believed herself to be at the time bisexual and she wasn't and your needs weren't being met or something was going on there perhaps that complicates your feelings because otherwise if that's not true if you're not in a place where you kind of resent her and what she's done to you even if it's no fault of her own that these things happened to you because she didn't know who she was now she does and you're happy for her this isn't a difficult dismount to stick your friends you're, you're not lovers anymore you're friends and you live together you're going to transition to roommates and you're going to love her like a friend and support her like a friend and release her from the expectations and the failures of being your girlfriend because you won't have girlfriend expectations so that she, and once you don't have girlfriend expectations anymore, she will no longer fail to meet your girlfriend expectations in the sexual realm. Right. And then you can 
love and support her as a friend as she deals with this dying relative at this tough time of life. If she isn't demanding from you a kind of boyfriendly emotional commitment anymore or at this difficult time, and she's not coming through, she's not matching your boyfriendly commitment, the demand she's making from you with girlfriendly commitment of her own to you, if she's not making that kind of dance. And some people do that. They break up, they want it to be amicable, and they still demand from their partner a kind of relationship level emotional interaction and commitment that can seem unfair, particularly to the partner who's been dumped. She's not being unfair to you like that. If she's willing to ratchet this all back to friendship, love and commitment, friendship interaction, there's no problem here. Be there for her. If moving out now would be impossible for her because of this tough spot she's in with the dying relative that she's taking care of, don't fucking move out. Help pay the rent and help ease her burden as a friend while she deals with this life crisis. And then when this life crisis passes, when the relative she's taking care of passes, you can reassess how you guys can continue to be friends and whether you should continue to be roommates. Most likely not. But that's a bridge you can cross after the funeral. Hey, Dan. I had a question for you. So uh, I've been texting with this guy that I met on OkCupid, and we've been talking for almost a month now. We haven't been able to meet just because we've been busy. And so I've been texting. He seems cool. And then all of a sudden in the last like couple of days, he started to get kind of insane and kind of clingy and make weird jokes about how we should like, get married on our first date? Like, wouldn't it be funny if we went to City Hall for our first date and got married? And, you know, that's not really funny, but okay. Yeah, it's like talking about how I'm going to be so much better than all of his exes. I still have not met this person in person, like, at all. So anyway, last night I, I had a gig all of a sudden. I had a random gig where I had to go work until, you know, late hours in the night. And I, I wasn't able to respond to his text because I was on my feet for, like, five hours. I got home at one in the morning and just went to bed. I didn't respond to him. And I woke up to a ton of text messages from him, like, oh my God, are you okay? I was so worried. I don't know this person. I've never met this person. It's kind of freaking out that this person is suddenly so invested with me, whereas I've like been really clear that we just met. So it's kind of freaking me out. Anyway, I would love your opinion if I'm overreacting, if this is totally normal, or if I should run for the hills because this guy is going to smother me in my sleep. I haven't met him. I don't know if I want to meet him after all this, or am I just being overreacting? I would head for the hills. I'd be running. If you're not ready to run, if your interactions with him previously have been saner, you can give him a chance. Although I typically don't give second chances to people who denigrate all of their exes in a conversation with me back when I was dating. My feeling is if someone is on bad terms with all of their exes, that someone is the common denominator in all of those shitty failed relationships. And it's probably them. They are probably the problem. But if you want to give him a chance, text him. Your truth, as Oprah might say, your text freaked me out because we actually haven't met yet. And this clingy Mary and running down all your ex-boyfriend shit, it gives me pause and makes me less inclined to ever want to meet you in person, period. And so you're going to have to dial that shit back if you want to keep interacting with me. Send that off and see how he reacts. And if he becomes a clingy via text, a clexty, I don't know what that word would be, what that neologism would be. How do you cling to someone digitally from afar, virtually clingy? If he becomes clingy and weird and, and psycho, well, then you know what you need to know about this guy, which is that it's a blessing you haven't met him in person yet. And it's a blessing that he doesn't know your address. And it's a blessing that there is a block feature on your phone. 
We're going to take a quick break from your calls. There are tons of scientists and researchers and academics out there trying to figure out what is up with human sexuality. And every once in a while, we invite one of them on our show to share the results of their latest research for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining us by phone to tell us what she's got, Dr. Cynthia Graham. Cynthia Graham, she's a professor of sexual and reproductive health and a member of the Indiana University Kinsey Institute condom use research team. And you're joining us today, Dr. Graham, by phone from the United Kingdom. Thank you for making the time. You're very welcome. It's good to be here. So you have this new study out. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's about. Tell us what you got. Okay, so um, our team have been doing research on condom errors and problems um, in men for many years. But we, one of the things we've never looked at, it, we've always wondered whether men who reported erection problems when using condoms, whether or not they had a sort of vulnerability to experiencing condom, sorry, to experiencing erection problems generally. And ours was the first study to look at this. So this was the study published just recently, heterosexual men, so straight men only, just under 500 men. So you were, looking at, you were looking at guys who said that, oh, when I use condoms, I have difficulty maintaining an erection, which is something that guys will say to get their partners to allow them to not use a condom. And so you were looking to see if those guys had erection problems generally, not just erection problems when they used a condom? Correct. Okay. But we did, we did look at, we did also recruit men who didn't experience condom associated erection problems. So we could compare the two. So men who said, yes, I have erection problems whenever I use a condom and those who don't. Um, we looked at both. And what we found was that the men who had um, problems using condoms uh, and having erection problems rather were more likely to report having erection problems generally. Um, all the time. One of the things I think it's important to stress about this, this, this is the first study that's looked at this, um, so it needs to be replicated, but the media um, reported this quite inaccurately. So they talked about the headlines were condoms do not decrease sensitivity. One of the, one of the headlines cited a lot was it's not the condom, it's your dick. Um, and that's, <laughs> actually, that's actually not what we found. So we didn't, the study, there's another study done by the Kinsey Institute recently, just last year, that looked at this and they found that condoms did indeed reduce sensitivity of the penis. So it was a lab-based study measuring sensitivity of the penis, mm -hmm. in, you know, in an experimental situation. And interestingly, that study found that Condoms did decrease sensitivity. So these, these headlines actually are incorrect. Uh, wait, thing, wait. I, I can't have you talking about that other study on my show because it contradicts something I've said. And I can't have study. I can't have science on my show. I can't have empirical crap on my show that contradicts me. Because okay. my argument has always been, you know, I hear from guys, I, I can't feel anything when I have a condom. And then my own yeah. personal life experience and using condoms myself and talking to people, nobody – There's. it's just – it's true that, you know, it's – common knowledge it's just an accepted fact that a lot of people the condom breaks and they don't notice that the condom broke if there's such a decrease in sensitivity with the condom on how come the sudden removal of the condom doesn't even register yeah okay so that that's a great question one of the things i think that really we don't understand very well but i think our studies hint at this is there's a lot of variability mm -hmm. so there are some men who you know i've just been looking at interviews for a study we're doing here in the uk there's some men who say doesn't really decrease my sensitivity very much so I, I think that's something that hasn't been stressed enough. One, one thing we did find was that men who report problems with fit and feel of condoms are more likely to have erection problems. So I, I wouldn't question 
that some men definitely report decreased sensation. I think there's a lot of hype about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that I agree with what you said earlier. I think men sometimes will use that as an excuse for not, you know, and that we, we have a lot of evidence that there are something called condom resistance tactics. That's the name in the research um, area where men will use that as one of the number one reasons I, they don't want to I hate that condom. name. It makes it sound brave. It makes it sound like the French resistance. <laughs> Right. Condom it resistance. It makes it sound heroic. There is, there's a new questionnaire measuring condom resistance tactics. Where, and that is the name that is the name that's used. Um, uh, this is quite recent research. And there are women use condom resistance tactics too, by the way. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's uh, one study. There's one study. Let's jump back to your original study that, yes. that, that we're, yes. we're here to talk about. Because there's the one that shows that there is decrease in sensitivity, uh, which uh, I'm going to have to accept because I'm an empiricist. And if the study shows, the study shows. But your study found, you, you talked about how it was misrepresented. How should it have been represented? What did your study actually find? What we found was that men who reported erection problems when they used condoms were more vulnerable. They reported being more likely to experience erection problems when they weren't using condoms. But you don't know why that is, or the study we, didn't know that. We, no, we don't know why. We speculated in the paper. We wondered whether or not... We know that young men often use condoms. Um, they, they often don't as well. But when they first experience using condoms and have problems with erections, it may not last, right? There's also some evidence that that may just be for the first few minutes, but they may start to worry about it. So, mm -hmm. and we, we do know that men worry about erections <laughs> and, and men worry about losing their erections quite often. I call it squirrel, the squirrel problem that some guys, if there's this momentary distraction that pulls them out of the sex where they have to focus on mechanics or, you know, ripping the condom package open, something that pulls them away from stimuli, from looking at yeah. the boobs or playing with the boobs or doing whatever it is that keeps their dick engaged, that momentary stumble can derail their erection. And they yes. associate that then with picking up that condom. And so my advice for those guys is open the goddamn condom packets before you start to have sex. Put the condom on during foreplay a long time before you're going to do intercourse. Because if what you're doing is... You know, you're rolling around, you're having foreplay, it's oral, you're touching each other, and then yes. you stop everything, get out of bed, open a condom packet, roll a condom onto your dick, which is going to be not the same temperature as your dick, and then try to initiate penetrative sex. That's a whole, those are a lot of squirrels, squirrel, yes. squirrel, squirrel. Yeah. And I completely agree. I, I completely agree. And one of the things in, I don't do clinical work, but I did do clinical work for many years. One of the things that I heard time and time again was as soon as the an erection kind of started to wane, men would worry. And so part of sex therapy is saying, you know, erections come and go. And you can do things, as I agree with you, about the steps involved. A lot of people, you know, they think they know how to use a condom. That's another finding from research, too, that a lot of men will think they know how to use a condom. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, you, if you forget steps, you don't, and then you feel like you're fumbling. And so I agree with you. I think there are a lot of things that I think there were implications of this study in terms of what we, what we ask men about, young men about. Um, and steps, really simple things that they can do. Take your time. Don't worry if you lose your erection, like it's not going to come back. And, and you got to say, you got to say that to the partners too. Like if he loses yes. his erection for a moment and you break out a tiny little casket and you have a funeral for his dick, it ain't coming back. Completely you, agree. You, you have yeah. to act like this is not a big deal. It's coming back. Uh, something else that just practical advice that I give people. And I'm, I just got a letter right before I got on the phone with you. 
from a woman who's all worried that her partner, there's something wrong with her partner, that he must not be attracted to her because he occasionally strokes himself while they're having sex. That he occasionally, you know, will pull out and stroke himself for a minute and dive back in. And that means she's not enough of a turn on to keep his dick hard. And that's just bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that's a big part of sex therapy that we talk about that. Um, We talk about the expectations that, you know, sex has to be in this kind of linear fashion. Nobody can be engaging in anything else, fantasy, anything. Um, And I I call it the look, ma, no hands problem. That if you're having sex (laughs) with somebody else, you know, masturbation is when you touch yourself. Partnered sex, it's not okay for you to touch yourself. And if your partner touches themselves, they're doing partnered sex wrong. And no, no, no. You can use your own hands on yourself and on your partner's junk as a part of the flow of partnered sex. And if you have erection problems, being unselfconscious about incorporating your own right hand every once in a while is a good way to build your own confidence and work around and get past it. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's what we've written about in this paper, in the discussion, too. There are lots of things that men can do. You said it earlier on about taking time, opening condom packet before. The other thing that I've heard men say a lot in our qualitative studies, in our interview studies, is, you know, partner being involved in applying condom. There's, you know, not a, we don't know enough about that, but our team have done research at the Kinsey on female partners applying condoms. And men find that really a big turn on. Um, and, uh, but you know, some women will never do that. They think it's the man's job, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is amazing. So there's a whole, you know, there is a whole literature on eroticizing condom use as well. Some people find that really difficult to imagine that can be done, but people report, of course you can eroticize condom use and there, there are all kinds of things you can do to make it less likely. Okay. So it's going to turn into a problem. So in summary, what's the takeaway? What's the practical takeaway for listeners from your study? The practical takeaway is I think we should be asking young men and also giving them tips about what they can do if they lose their erection when either applying a condom or during penetrative sex using a condom. Um, very little research on this. It's been there's a lot of speculation around it. But I, that's why I think our study was important in that we actually did assess whether or not there is this vulnerability for men who experience erection problems when they use condoms. And in fact, there, there seems to be. Uh, it seems to be they're they're losing it in other situations too, but but they don't have erectile dysfunction. I want to stress that. So that's another take home message. They did not meet the criteria for any kind of clinical erectile dysfunction. Where can listeners who want to read the study themselves find it? The study was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Uh, that isn't available free access. The article, um, but we can um, definitely um, put up a summary on the Kinsey Institute website which is www.kinseyinstitute.org. Dr. Cynthia Graham, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today and give us a shout the next time you got something to share with us. Will do. Thanks. Hi, Dan. This is a 32-year-old male, straight, in a long-term, happy, monogamous relationship. And uh, I got a little issue. Some friends have have a party, and uh, my girlfriend and I met this other couple that we've become friendly with. And the other woman kind of flirted a little bit, and I've kind of developed a little bit of a crush on her. She seemed like she she liked me a little bit, but now there's, every time we're in the same company, it's very awkward, and I really don't know what to do. I really don't want to create any friction with my girlfriend. I love her very much, and I want to be with her long term, but uh, I want to make this awkward feeling between me and this other woman go away. So your call raises an interesting issue because 
all through you know the years, I've told people that you know you can be in a committed monogamous relationship. You're still going to want to fuck other people. You can be very much in love with your partner and still want to fuck other people. And your partner can be very much in love with you and still want to fuck other people. And I encourage people not to waste a lot of time policing their partners for evidence in a monogamous relationship, for evidence of what you should just assume to be true. Of course, your girlfriend, she wants to fuck other people just mm-hmm. like you want to fuck other people. That monogamous commitment you've made and that love and that desire to honor that monogamous commitment means you don't fuck other people, but you're still going to want to. And the reason I, I find your call interesting, the reason I'm calling you back is, okay, so even if you accept all of that, even if you and your girlfriend you know, mm-hmm. accept that she's going to check out a hot barista boy every once in a while and you're going to run into a woman every once in a while that you develop a little bit of a crush on or you think is hot – what do you do then with those feelings? What do you do when you want to fuck somebody else, but you can't fuck that person, but you have to be in the same room with that person, and it brings up in you these awkward desires that can never be acted on? How do you process that, and how do you work through it? And so uh, I guess I'm asking you, well, how do you do that? How do you work through that? No, I'm calling to tell you how you do that. You know that expression, yeah. expression the Christians have? Uh, and you could be a Christian, and that's a fine thing. I know lots of lovely Christians. Pray on it. I'm going to pray mm-hmm. on that. Sometimes I think, you know, people will, you know, you're not allowed to act on these desires. You're never going to fuck this woman. You want to be with your girlfriend long-term. You're committed to her, committed to monogamy. Uh, so you're not going to act on it, but you can fuck on it. You can jack on it. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can, you can have sex with your girlfriend and think about the girl you have a crush on. You can jack off. You can masturbate about it. You're allowed to have, but I think it's imperative that people and couples allow each other to have an interior life and their own fantasies that sometimes aren't about you and allowing someone to lean into those fantasies. If I may borrow that phrase <laughs> to lean into those fantasies and enjoy <laughs> them without guilt, I think makes that person less likely to act on them or to feel like they have, you know, if their choice is I'm not allowed to think about this unless I act on it. I think that incentivizes acting on it, but you can indulge in, you know, jacking off about this woman as much as you want or thinking about yeah. her while you're fucking your girlfriend every once in a while, which everybody does, but nobody likes to be reminded of. Sometimes yeah. you have sex with your partner and think about somebody else you might also like to have sex with at some point, not somebody else you would rather have sex with for the rest of your life than your partner instead of your partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, the final component besides jacking on it uh, or fucking on it, like praying on it. I think the final component is don't hide yourself from this woman. You know, you don't want to be alone with this woman necessarily. You don't want to develop an intimacy that then fuels the sexual attraction. But Mm -hmm. I I think treating her like she's kryptonite and you're Superman and you can't be in the same room, you don't want to give it that kind of power. And sometimes, you know, repeated exposures to someone that you have a crush on initially, you begin to see their flaws. You begin to see what's not so great about them. You smell a fart. Like things happen where... (laughs) That increased familiarity, everyone's worried that increased familiarity is going to fuel the crush, fuel the desire, and lead inevitably to cheating. And often it's the opposite, where that increased familiarity, the, the, the you know, you begin to see through them. You begin to see them as more complicated. And, you know, the, the, when you first see somebody and you're into them, you don't see their flaws. And you don't get to expose to the shit about them that annoys you. Whereas you are intimately familiar with all of your girlfriend's flaws, and you could itemize on a spreadsheet, everything about her that annoys you and you choose to be with her anyway, but some strange new person is easy to ide- idealize them. 
because you're not, you, haven't mm-hmm. been, you haven't been exposed to them very much. So controlled exposure. I'm not saying go on a camping trip alone with this woman and sleep in a pup tent. I'm saying yeah, exactly. as couples, you can hang out with them. You can do some social things where you're out in the world with them. Don't wall her off. Because okay. cause then those moments when you do interact, where you do cross paths, if she's in your social orbit, you know, if this is someone you don't ever have to see again, maybe you don't ever have to see her again. But if she's in your social orbit, walling her off and pushing her off are going to make those moments when you do interact and you are thrown together that much tenser and potentially more explosive. That makes sense. Do you have the kind of relationship with your girlfriend where you can be like, I have a crush on so-and-so kind of. Oh, she, she's, she's totally aware. We talked about it. Oh, good. That's a, that's a relief. We talked about the boundaries. So. That's a relief. Cause then. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> Cause I just think it's terrible when people are together, discover evidence of what they should assume to be true and then lose their shit or blow up or act like they've been wronged in some way. When actually what you're doing here is acknowledging that, you know, there's this attraction and you don't want it to escalate to the doing of wrong. And your girlfriend can help you with that mm-hmm. without it being policey, without it being fault findy. And I promise you the day will come when she has the same sort of complicated, fucked up, whoa, feelings about somebody else. And you guys can then fuck on it together. Makes sense. And I, I expect that to happen at some point. How long you and your girlfriend been together? Six years. Oh my God. This is terrific. It sounds like you guys have a really healthy and mature relationship. So I don't think this. We really do. <laughs> uh, I don't think this should be a problem at all. I hope it isn't. I hope it doesn't become one, and it's less likely to because you guys are so honest with each other. We're on the same page on just about everything, and and it, this is the first time in my relationship with her that this has happened to me. One other way to look at it is you can enjoy it, and you can allow the sort of erotic energy that this woman awakens in you, you can put that in yoke in the service of your relationship. You can plow that energy into your girlfriend that in a close monogamous relationship, sometimes when these things happen, it's possible to, for it to benefit the closed monogamous relationship. If there isn't policing, if there isn't fault finding, if there isn't drama and tears, if instead is, mm-hmm. you know, you're horny, you really want to fuck her. Like, come here and fuck me. Let me take care of that. You can, you can enjoy the, the heady sensations of this crush together and you can, it can make your relationship stronger if you don't regard them as poisonous and, and a betrayal in themselves, which they are not. The betrayal would be acting on them with her. But you can act on them with your girlfriend and it's all good. It sounds good. Have fun, man. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 27-year-old straight female from Chicago and I have a question about how to handle a situation I've encountered dating a new uh, man. I met him on OkCupid and we've been out a few times. We've had some really nice dates. He's put a lot of thought into how we spent our time together. The first few times we hung out for at least 12 hours and we have another date set up for uh, in a couple of days. The only issue is that uh, he followed me on Instagram the other night and when I looked through his feed, I found his ex-girlfriend and when I looked at her feed, I saw that just about a week and a half ago, she was in town visiting and she posted a bunch of pictures of him with captions like, so excited to see my man in Chicago and uh, stuff like that. So it seems like he had a 
ex-girlfriend or current girlfriend from the city he just moved from who came to visit him. And I'm really not sure how to approach it. I've had a lot of situations like this happen to me where I get involved with somebody who just got out of a relationship and we spend a bunch of time together and then they tell me that they're not ready for something. And I don't really know how to approach it because I was snooping on his Instagram. But I also don't know if he's lying to me or hiding something from me. And it is a new, brand new thing. So I know that he doesn't owe me anything. But I also don't want to right now get involved with somebody who is still deeply involved with someone else because I'm looking for a more serious relationship. But I also don't know how to bring that up because we've only hung out a handful of times. My advice would be don't snoop because you might find some things out that you can't not know, can't unknow. But now that you know that he appears, at least via his Instagram account and his ex, supposedly ex-girlfriend's Instagram account, to still be involved with her in some way, in a way where she would refer to him as her man, what do you do? You snooped and now you know. Well, instead of saying, I followed you, I went to your Instagram, we've all hung out a handful of times, we barely know each other, we've made no explicit commitments to each other, we've had no conversations about exclusivity at all, but you followed me on Instagram, I looked at your Instagram account, I found your ex-girlfriend, I saw that she was in town, I looked at her Instagram account, and I saw how she was referring to you, and that is just going to make you seem crazy. So if you like this guy, instead of framing a conversation about your relationship and where it might be headed, Instead of grounding a relationship about your relationship in what you know now about him and his relationships based on your snooping, just use fucking I statements. And the next time you hang out, continue to be casual about it, just throw it out there on the table that you're interested in dating somebody seriously, but the kind of person you are, the kind of dating that you want to do, the kind of relationships you want to have, you wouldn't want to date someone who was concurrently involved with someone else that you, when you date, prefer to date someone exclusively who is also dating you exclusively. And then ball in his court. He may say, I'm not ready to make any sort of serious commitment and I'm currently seeing someone else casually or I'm still exploring some things with my ex-girlfriend, ex by circumstance. Perhaps the move is what pulled them apart, not any falling out. Perhaps he'll say all that and you guys can shake hands and walk away from each other with the understanding if a time comes when he's completely unencumbered and he's still interested in you, he can get back in touch with you. No hard feelings. Just where you're at right now, both of you, you're not on the same page. But if he tells you there's no one else and you can, through the horrors of social media, verify that you are being lied to, then you should probably end it. Unless you enjoy being lied to. And I don't think that you do. I don't think that is a fetish. There are so many crazy, rare paraphilias that have crazy names. But a fetish for being lied to, if somebody has that, that is so rare, a paraphilia, that it does not yet have a name. Hi, Dan. My name is Michelle, 37, bisexual, from Oakland, California. I'm calling because I recently have had some a relationship, I put that in quotation marks, with a woman who is a self-declared lesbo through and through. She recently just told me that she would be unwilling to date me seriously because I identify as bisexual. 
When I asked her why this was so, she explained that she would be she would fear that I would leave her for a man or that she would not she wouldn't feel adequate like there was something she couldn't provide for me. I I was really disappointed in hearing that because I feel like I've been showing up 100% and I knew that I felt that she was only showing up about 85% and having her explain this to me, now I understand that gap. But what I don't understand is how are lesbians getting away with this? Isn't this some type of ism? Aren't I being discriminated because of my sexual orientation? I've done some research about on this and it seems like the LGBT community is split. I'm wondering what your advice is. Should I can, should I just move on or shall I just take her at less than 100% while I'm always going to be giving my 100? Have you seen the really terrific movie from a few years ago, The Kids Are All Right? It's about a lesbian couple played by Annette Bening and Julianne Moore. It's a terrific film where this lesbian couple reconnects semi-accidentally, their son initiates it, with their sperm donor who comes into their life. And then comes in Julianne Moore, because Julianne Moore, a lesbian, ends up having an affair with the sperm donor. Just one of those things. And what I loved about the movie was this was all handled very matter-of-factly. Uh, also something handled matter-of-factly, Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, as the lesbian couple, watch gay male porn. Which is a thing. Lots of lesbians like to watch gay male porn. And they just put that out there in the film. One of the kids catches them watching gay male porn. They have this awkward conversation about why their lesbian moms are watching gay male porn. And they just wrestle with it. The filmmaker just wrestles with this sort of fact of lesbian life. And one of the facts of lesbian life that anyone who's been listening to this show for a very long time is acquainted with are the great number of lesbians out there who wind up having casual affairs or even love affairs with men. There are a lot of sort of functionally bisexual but lesbian-identified women out there. And sometimes I get yelled at by lesbians like your girlfriend who don't want... This fact wrestled with publicly. Lest shitty, shitty men who are attracted to lesbians think they can get with every lesbian and they can't, right? I even think lesbians who might be interested in fucking a man every once in a while are not going to be interested in the kind of man who thinks he's entitled to lesbian pussy or lesbian-identified pussy. Anyway, circling back to your girlfriend and what's going on here and how lesbians are getting away with this. Well, lesbians are getting away with sleeping with men, a lot of them. In part because a lot of women who might want to identify as bisexual or might be more honest and accurate for them to identify as bisexual, round themselves up to lesbian identified to avoid this kind of prejudice and this kind of snark and sarcasm from other women who are lesbians who will not date bisexual women. So that creates this incentive to round yourself up to lesbian when you're actually not lesbian. So bisexual women may be underrepresented in lesbian land because so many of the bisexual women in lesbian land have been made invisible by their rounding up to lesbian identity, right? And that can color your girlfriend's experience. Part of the problem with this, of course, then, is there's a lot of women who are lesbians who are in relationships or dating women who are lesbian-identified bisexuals who wind up, in fact, cheating with a man or leaving their girlfriend for a man. And then that becomes apocryphal. That spreads through the community or that person's community. What happened? That betrayal. And it can make a bisexual seem like a more dangerous girl to date, even though the person that they were dating was not bisexually identified. These are the complications, the unique complications and trials of the bisexual identified woman. What I would have said to your girlfriend, and it sounds like you were still dating this woman, what I would say to her is dating somebody who's lesbian identified isn't going to protect you from being with a woman who might one day fuck a dude 
why don't we sit down and watch? The kids are all right together tonight. Also, her fear around your bisexuality, that you're not enough for her necessarily, that there are things that other people can provide you with that she can't, that would be true. Both those things would be true, even if you were a lesbian also. That one person cannot be all things to another person, period. The end. Even if both those people are straight, even if both those people are lesbians, even if both those people are gay men, even if there's no fluidity or grayness around the edges at all, period, two people can't meet each other's needs, all of them, always. One of the things that you sign up for in a committed long-term monogamous or even non-monogamous relationship is that you're going to pay prices of admission. There are needs that are not going to be met. There are going to be things that your partner can't provide you with. But everything else your partner provides you with is so wonderful that you are, in a sense, compensated. It doesn't matter. You let those things go. You choose your partner, even with those shortcomings, those needs of yours that they can't meet, that will never be met, because they meet so many of your other needs. And she has to be okay with that and comfortable with that, or she'll never be in a relationship that lasts ever. Because even if she finds another 100% lesbian lesbian, those things, those worries that she has, they will still be true of that relationship. Not all her needs will be met. Not all of her partner's needs will be met. You know, things that each of those women, both of those women will not be able to provide for each other. Even if neither of those women has any interest in ever seeing a dick. My final bit of advice to you as a bisexual woman, you know, when you look around LGBT land about this issue, about the gay men who won't date bi guys and lesbians who won't date by women, there is a lot of grousing and straight people who won't date by people. There's a lot of grousing out there in Byland, and rightly so. Justified grousing about this phenomenon. It is not fair. It is prejudicial. It is galling. And it is wrong. And I discourage it, even though maybe 20 years ago, I would have endorsed it. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have dated personally a bi guy myself. And I no longer feel that way. I would date a bi guy now. I would partner with a bi guy now. I am less crazed and insecure about this shit and more informed now. All that said, qualified out the butt, you read these stories where bisexual people bitch about the horrors of dating monosexuals. Homosexuals are heterosexuals. We are monosexuals. And something that never quite comes up, something that's never discussed is the option of dating other bisexuals. That if monosexuals are awful, if your experience of dating monosexuals just blows chunks, you as a woman who would be interested in a relationship with a woman, you have an option other than lesbian. You have the option as a bi woman of dating and partnering with other bi women and then having the occasional awesome fucking three-way with some very, very grateful and fortunate straight and or bi dude. So I was at the bus stop, God flash. So then I got off the bus today, and this man who had flashed me was walking past very quickly and walked down the road and then uh, kind of into a street near my house. So there's no question as to whether or not this man lives in my neighborhood, and it's likely that I will have to deal with him again. So the flasher man that I was completely horrified by, who pulled out his penis near my face at a bus stop, lives two blocks from me. And it's likely I'm going to see him again. My question is, how do I handle this? And should I be really afraid that he's going to try to do something more? 
Uh, do I need to be afraid that I am being stalked by a serial killer? Is this the kind of thing that like exhibitionists, like people who who get arrested for this kind of thing, do they often commit worse acts? Because I think this man is going to be someone I see lots around my neighborhood, and I am concerned about how fearful I should be. A few years ago, we had a question about flashing and whether flashing would escalate to assault. And we had a researcher on the show who delved into this. Um, and the fact is that most flashers do not progress to rape or assault. That doesn't mean that rapists and people who do commit acts of sexual assault also haven't flashed. But it doesn't follow that if some rapists are flashers, all flashers are rapists. That said, this would be very unnerving. I'm sorry this happened to you. This this guy is a, a rude jerk. And if I were you, I would employ the tools of social media uh, to protect myself. There have been cases right here in Seattle. There's a case where somebody uh, assaulted someone on a bus, flashed someone on a bus, and they uploaded the person's picture, took the person's picture in this crowded place and put it up. And that person was identified and arrested. That you have a tool in, the, in your phone that can provide you some degree of that can hold this person to account. One of the ways flashers, people who expose themselves to other people, which is a fetish and a kink, it's unfair, it's not consensual, it's driven in part by unnerving or putting fear into another person. You now have a tool where you can unnerve and put fear right back into them because there's accountability. Somebody flashes you, by the time the police get there, that person is gone. You know, in the pre-cell phone photograph era, the person is gone or they pulled up their pants and they deny it and it's he said, she said. But if you're standing there with a camera and you document the crime, you win that he said, she said argument. He said, she shows the photographs of what the fuck this person did. He gets arrested. So if I were you and this happened to me and this happened to me again and again in my neighborhood and this was a someone I could identify, I would employ those tools. One of the things that people who engage in this kind of behavior rely on is the other person's sense of decency and decorum and their desire to avoid conflict, even with someone who is violating them. You don't want to invite conflict of a physical nature. You don't want to battle this person. But photographing this person, outing them, identifying them, getting the police involved to stop this shit from happening, go for it. We're going to take a quick break from the calls, your calls. We will get back to them. We will get back to you in just a second because I want to have a conversation with Mike Pearl. He's a staff writer for Vice where he specializes in rude science and finding answers to hypothetical questions. And he recently published a piece called Death Grip Syndrome, Internet Myth or Penis Ruiner. So uh, thanks for jumping on the phone today, Mike. I appreciate it. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so what is death grip syndrome and whose fault is it and who popularized this potentially fictitious medical condition? Uh, okay, well, I mean, I think that a lot of people would say that you popularized it. Wait, what? Um, Wait, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, death, death grip syndrome is where you're uh, gripping your dick too tight and it makes it so that you cannot enjoy the sensation of a butt or a vagina. Uh, when you're having sex or mouth and you or have mouth. Let's not or, leave or mouth out. Um, or mouth and uh, and it makes it so that you have to buy a fleshlight apparently um, a lot of the a lot of the sites that sort of that sort of teach you how to treat your own 
death grip problem uh, prescribe flashlight use as a as a way to get around it. And and it and you know it it looks like they've sort of derived a uh, they, they've sort of like come up with a language that uses your term death grip, mm-hmm. but I think they've they've taken it a little too far. Okay, because I'm not I'm in no way associated or affiliated with any of these websites, but I wasn't even aware of until I read your piece that talk about death grip syndrome and how to treat it and that recommend fleshlight. And I'm not in business or bed literally or figuratively with fleshlight and never have been. Um, but, you know, I, I have written about it. And when you people like, as you did, chase down, you know, death grip syndrome, who originated that term, I did in my column many years ago to describe, uh, you, you know, not I hadn't done it. I'm not a scientist. This wasn't about data, just anecdote and folk wisdom to describe this thing that I had personally observed, which is some people masturbate in a certain way that ass and vagina and mouth can't replicate the, the sensations, the subtler sensations of penetrative sex with a partner can't replicate gripping your dick so hard. You're going to bloody yourself or these other modes of masturbation that some people engage in like humping a pillow or putting their penis between the mattress and box springs and humping and fucking away at that. And then they try to shift to partnered sex and penetrative sex and they can't climax. And what I had you know, gotten letters about over the years and observed in my own personal life was they can't climax, they can't climax, they pull out, they jack off in the style to which their dick has become accustomed and then they come and they do this every time and I called that death grip syndrome and I have talked about it in my column but I never went and talked to the scientists. You went and talked to the scientists and the researchers who said this is bullshit basically. Is that true? Kind of. Um, so Richard Santucci at uh, Detroit Receiving Hospital just sort of just sort of said that I mean it, he kind of said it was bullshit. I think his take was that that's a little bit of a reductive way to to look at this problem. You know, he he, he you know he points to diabetes, medications, low testosterone, anxiety, uh, you know, medications being uh, SSRI. Um, antidepressants, you know, he, he just would, he just would say like, well, if somebody came to a doctor with this problem, mm-hmm. would we, would we say you're gripping your dick too tight? You know, that would be just so far down the list mm-hmm. um, that I wouldn't even, that it's like kind of not even worth entertaining. Now, now tell us um, about SSRIs because that was news to me when you, you know, you interviewed me for the piece and that was news to me that the impact that they can have on, uh, on this particular problem that, that some people have. Because uh, yeah, you know, I was absolutely. familiar with the, the rap on SSRIs, uh, Prozac and other uh, drugs, are that they can crater your libido, but I didn't realize that they also, and I didn't know, but now I know, and thanks to you, that they can create uh, a problem with delayed ejaculation for many men. A problem with delayed ejaculation, and then they're also, I, I'm not sure if this is uh, a formal or informal clinical use of the drug, but uh, they're, they're also um, available for people who come too fast. Um, so you can it can be good. You can take SSRIs for your depression, and the bonus is that you last longer in bed. But yeah, there are people who take SSRIs, and, um, and which is Prozac and Zoloft, um, and and then end up, uh, you know, not being, being really delayed. Right. Not being able not being able to come. Being really delayed. Being delayed so far that they're taking you know sixty minutes, two hours to to come. They're losing interest. And they're just, uh, you know, faking it or just not coming so how and do jerking I, off later. How do I square your piece, which is terrific, and everyone should go read it. Uh, Google death grip syndrome, internet myth, or penis ruiner, or go to Vice and look it up. Look up Mike Pearl and his other stuff there. I, I want to square your piece and everything I learned reading it um, 
and from your own research with the anecdotal evidence that has sort of poured into my mailbox over the years, because my prescription, folk wisdom prescription for death grip syndrome has been stop it. Don't revert to the masturbation style that works in that clinch at the end where you're frustrated. You haven't come yet. If you don't come, don't come. And just, you have to, you have to get it through to your dick that, you aren't going to get that stim anymore. You have to retrain your dick. And I've heard from many people over the years who did that, that they would have sex. And if they didn't climax from penetrative intercourse, they didn't then in the last 30 seconds revert to the masturbation style, the death grip that worked for them, that they, you know, old reliable. And eventually their dicks were like, and I hate to, you know, anthropomorphize their dicks, but their dicks were like, all right, new neural pathways must be carved. And people have written to me about their success with this, that it might've taken three months or six months of not coming, not going to that crutch, not re reverting to that masturbation style. And eventually they had this breakthrough and they were able to now climax from ass, vagina, mouth in a way that they had never been able to before. Right. Well, I mean, you know, as far as squaring that with the science, I think that I think that um, your the advice that you've been giving comes out smelling like roses, actually, because the guy who's been doing this research, apparently the only guy who's been doing the research on this, his name is Michael Perlman, um, which is weirdly close to my own name, is, uh, you know, his conclusion that he's come to is really similar. You know, you just need to ease off the masturbation, maybe completely quit masturbating and you know, kind of like you said, get your dick really desperate and you'll, you'll find a way to come. But I think that where it, you know, I think that where the gap is that, that it, it, the, the gap is in this idea that the internet has really picked up on that it's, it's, it's this, it's this fist like grip. It's that it's the, the term death grip has sort of put the idea in people's heads that you get death grip syndrome from, you know, really like putting your dick in that wrestling hold. When what what uh, what Perlman actually calls it is um, an idiosyncratic style. He says less than half of people who have what you would call death grip mm -hmm. are gripping their dicks too high, too too tight. He says there's uh, there's really rapid stimulation, uh, touching your dick in a certain place or touching your all your genitals in a certain combination of places. Um, or, you know, he said always using the same sock when I was on the phone with you before you said always using the same jizz covered pillow. Um, you know, the, the, you know, he's, he's observed basically the same things that you have. The problem is that the urban dictionary definition, the Reddit definition is basically this idea, this completely false idea that you're killing the nerve endings in your dick by gripping it too tight or you're putting, you're literally putting calluses on your dick. Uh -huh. Those people are way off. Okay, it's so, way off. So it's about, it's about your dick being sort of acclimating yourself to just one style or using just one style. And so maybe we should retire death grip and replace it with monotonous masturbation syndrome. But that's what I said. I don't know. I don't know if that's a very catchy term, but that's what, that's just what I threw out. I'm good at those catchy terms. <laughs> uh, so maybe we, okay, we could put our, put our brains together, and come up with a new one. Cause you know, part of my advice has been, and this was really awkward advice uh, when you're the parent of uh, a teenager and you give them the sex talk and you want to also talk about masturbation. My advice to young people has been vary your technique you know, boys, left hand, right hand, a lot of lube, no, not much lube, a firm grip, a loose grip. You want your dick to be on its guard and not always know exactly what's coming because that's what partnered sex is going to be like in life. And so right. maybe we need to incorporate these two things together, the, the, the death grip advice, but we're not going to call it that anymore. I'm going to retire that term from the Savage Love lexicon. Um, okay. And that mix up your masturbatory routine so that when you get to partnered sex – 
you know, because people will sometimes masturbate for five years, 10 years before they get to partnered sex. So when you get to partnered sex, your dick isn't reliant on, or your clit isn't reliant on a certain very particular kind of touch that only you can give it and you, and the only touch you have given it for a decade. I really think that, yeah, I really think that would, uh, that would sort of like put a lot of, make people feel less alone in having this problem, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they knew that that's sort of what it was. Um, and another thing that I find really interesting about this is that, is that uh, this guy Perlman ties it to guys who just have a tendency to last a long time anyway. Um, and they've, they haven't really researched what physiologically, you know, causes that in men. There's, very, there's not very much research about it. There's a ton of research about that in women. It's weird that we have found it valuable to, to study that in women, but with, with men, we, I don't know, haven't cared so far to figure it out. So I couldn't even tell you why physically some men have that, that tendency, but it does lead them toward, uh, toward the disorder formerly known as death grip. <laughs> okay, what's the, what's the new name for it then? You proposed monotonous masturbation. I that's what that's what I threw out there. I'm not the best with naming things. Don't don't call it Mike Pearl Grip. <laughs> please, not that. You don't want your name forever associated with with this phenomenon. I mean, yeah. Look what happened to like doctors named Parkinson and things like that. You know, they 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 become terrifying. And prime ministers of Norway named Quisling or senators named Santorum. Yeah, you don't want that sort right. of so You don't want people to run around saying, look what Mike Pearl did to my dick. Yeah, please. Please not that. There are worse fates, but I, you know, if I had my druthers, I would not want that. So for now, we're going to call it monotonous masturbation, and we're going to say mix it up, vary your technique, lest you develop this problem. Uh, but we're open to other suggestions if anyone else out there has a suggestion. Mike Pearl, he's a staff writer at Vice. The piece is Death Grip Syndrome, Internet Myth, or Penis Ruiner. It is a real thing, but the name of it needs to change. That's the conclusion, right? Yep, that's it. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Mike. It was a real pleasure talking with you. And by the way, thanks for the piece. It's a great piece, and everybody should go read it. And I, and I learned a lot reading it. And so I, I appreciate that you took the time to write it and to run it down. All right. Uh, thanks. This, this was fun. Hey, Magnum listeners, it's Nancy. And smooch, there's a kiss for you and a trigger warning. This next call is pretty rough. Uh, it's got some child abuse and some violence and some suicides. So if that's not your cup of tea, then you're going to want to fast forward to about the one hour, 14 minute mark and then keep on trucking. Here we go. Hey, Dan, this is Nate, uh, straight male from uh, California. Recently, I met a girl at work, and uh, we just met, but she seems great. And uh, I've established that we have a mutual connection, that she's into me, I'm into her. And um, we do work together, so that's the first can of worms. I've never really had a relationship with a girl at work, and I am her supervisor, technically. I'm just worried that if things take a turn for the worst, it might be really awkward. And I know it's a risk. But I'm not exactly, like, the best at uh, finding relationships and uh, interacting with women. And it's been a, I've had a dry spell, to be frank. So I, I really am, I don't want to let it necessarily let it go um, based on that. I really want to, like, let it see if it'll work because I really like her. Um, there's some other factors as well, though. It's not just the work. The work is, like, probably the least thing I'm worried about. Again, as I stated, I'm not really good with women. And I think it goes back, you know, I have, like, a lot of issues. Uh, when I was a really small child, like three years old, my mother uh, had like a psychotic break and she tried to kill me. Uh, she stabbed me several times and I, you know, I had to get flown out in a helicopter. Um, and I, they were just surprised that she didn't get any uh, vital organs. And, you know, she did nick my 
my lungs and I think my liver, but, you know, other than that, I was okay. Um, I don't really remember the experience, but it has, it's clearly had a, a very dramatic effect on my life, especially in terms of uh, my love life. I've just never been able to really, like, I've had real bad self-esteem issues. I just, I've always had trouble connecting and um, accepting love. And um, I've always, later on in life, after I've had a, a few relationships that I've had, I've always found a way to break them off for whatever reason. And then later, you know, I realized that it was just because I was insecure and that I was scared. Like, quite frankly, I, I find myself scared of, like, women. And um, just, I don't know what it is. It's a real, like, deep-seated, like, almost subconscious feeling where it's just, I really get nervous and scared. And, you know, it, it sort of carries over to my sex life as well. Like, I've had troubles with, um, like, maintaining an erection. And um, that really makes me nervous about this new relationship as well because, like, that's that's uh, ended a few relationships before where, like, I wasn't able to really perform. And, you know, the girls, I guess they, you know, of course, they just, you know, they probably got tired of it. And I, I understand. And, um, uh, you know, so um, I know it's not a physiological issue either because I don't have any problems, you know, masturbating or anything like that, but it's only, like, when it comes to actual sexual encounters I get real nervous and... Uh, Again, I have trouble maintaining uh, my erection, and it sucks. So I'm hoping you can help me maybe. I know I've, I've seen therapists about this before, and uh, they've helped me unpack some things, uh, but I'm just hoping, um, you know, after listening to your podcast for probably over a year now, I'm just uh, hoping maybe you could help me out as well. Uh, so what's going on, Dan? Thanks for calling. Uh, good to hear from you. Uh, it's uh, nice to speak with you. I am first, as I'm sure everyone listening so sorry for what you've been put through uh what happened to you as a child that you're as together as you are is a miracle and that you weren't uh that you didn't perish and i'm i just ache for you my heart goes out to you what a, what a horrifying experience and a horrifying thing to have to walk with the rest of your life i'm so sorry no i really appreciate that and i've, I've heard that from other people who said they're surprised that like you said, I'm as put together as I am. Um, but yeah, it uh, definitely affects me in certain ways, like especially relationships and stuff. So, right. Uh, yeah, you know. You know, I, I think often in in a, in a case like this, with, with such you know a searing trauma, it, it, we can look at this and say, you know, all of these other issues must flow from that that trauma, because that makes a sort of intuitive sense. Sometimes it's freeing, though, to say to yourself that there are other people in the world who have insecurities. There's other people in the world who have issues uh, maintaining erections in, in, in the clinch, and they didn't have this experience, that we can right. separate these things out and take them one at a time and, and compartmentalize in a way that you know when you're processing erectile dysfunction, uh, you're not also then having to revisit and reprocess this er defining trauma that you can have a, a life altering life defining trauma without having to allow it to define every other problem or trauma that you ever have in your life that, you know, you, and I don't want to minimize this. It's a horrible thing that happened to you, but if you view every other problem in your life through the prism of it, that it keeps it really in the forefront and it gives it more power than it may deserve. Because there are guys out there who have your exact other issues without having this issue. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think maybe you're right. Sometimes I do kind of pile it on to that one 
situation. It's just uh, a lot of times I just assume it's related because, like, I have such insecurities, um, you know, with, uh, you know, attracting women and talking to women. And If you um, listen to this show, if you read yeah. my column or anybody else's sex advice or relationship column or show, there are people, you know, we're awash in calls from people who have, you know, men who are insecure, men who have issues, this exact issue around uh, erectile dysfunction, and, and men who have these insecurities and fears in, in their relationships. It's very, very common. I'm not telling you to deny or stuff this trauma that you suffered as a, when you were a toddler. Oh my God, as a parent, I just ache to, to, to stuff it down or to be ashamed of it or shove it in a memory hole. I'm just saying that you should give yourself the permission to separate these issues out and approach them one at a time. You're never going to resolve the trauma of what you went through when you were three years old. Yeah. In, in a way that that's, that's a wound that, that never heals. That's something you will walk with and will impact you all your life. So if you bundle up all your other issues in that experience, it kind of makes them as intractable. It, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes, that does actually make a lot of sense. It's a good point. Yeah. But I do think you should be out about this, this life experience with anyone that you date. And if it helps you to say, I've had these issues, you know, no one is more vulnerable than a toddler in the arms of or presence of a parent. And of course, you know, the vulnerability that we experience when we are in love, nothing makes us feel more vulnerable and exposed and open to pain than loving someone. Yeah. Because their pain becomes our pain. And because they have this ability because they're inside us to, to make us hurt in a way that no one else could. And the parallel there with what you went through in your three is just undeniable. And we're never more vulnerable than we are in a way during sex. We have to open ourselves up. We have to expose ourselves, not just physically, but also emotionally. We have to reveal things to someone else about ourselves that we may have struggled with, uh, with shame or just sex phobia and all of that. Those feelings of vulnerability, those, it's almost like some sort of uh, psychic mystic nerve. There's going to be a lot of crossing of that nerve with the vulnerability that how vulnerable you were at three and, and what happened to you at three. So uh, other situations where you are making yourself vulnerable, I can see definitely that would tap those. That would, that, that would plug into your fears and insecurities that, that would revive the anxiety. I, I, I totally get it. I think the way forward, if you want to have a relationship is to be upfront about it, be upfront about what happened to you, to be upfront about your other issues, but also to say they could or could not be related to this experience and then set it aside. Not pretend it never happened, but set it aside. And so, you know, perhaps the erectile dysfunction, the issues that you had stem from this, perhaps not, but here's how we deal with erectile dysfunction, whether it relates to this early childhood traumatic experience or not. You say, I wasn't able to perform in the past in relationships, you know, when you were having sex, when you were intimate, your, yeah. your dick wasn't able to perform. Your dick wasn't as reliable as any man would like his dick to be, including millions of other men who have the same problem, erectile dysfunction, without this early childhood experience that they can tie it to. Right? So what do you do? When your dick doesn't perform, your tongue performs, your fingers perform toys perform. You can still be with somebody. You can be intimate with someone. You can take the focus and pressure off your dick and still have amazing sex, still give somebody pleasure. And often, and this is just the standard like rap for people with uh, men with erectile dysfunction. 
If your dick ain't hard, don't walk off the field. Don't, you know, if you're with somebody and they can't get hard, you don't bust out the like eight inch casket and have a funeral for their dick. You don't bury <laughs> it. Yeah. You make, you treat the dick like it's awesome that you're here when you're hard, but if you're not here and we're still wanting to be intimate and roll around, we can succumb to frustration. We can succumb to recrimination and insecurities on both of our parts, or we can do other stuff. We can still connect. And often this can be very freeing for people. Often to, to, to suddenly be in a sexual situation where you're not going to give up, you're not going to walk away. You're with somebody who is not an asshole, who, if you can't get hard, isn't going to make it about them. You can, when you pivot to these other things that you also enjoy and taking pleasure and giving them pleasure, even if you can't give them pleasure with your dick and get pleasure from your dick as you're giving them pleasure, your dick will magically often revive because it doesn't have to be there because you've taken the pressure off. And it's usually the pressure and the focus where the guy's looking at his dick going, oh my God, get hard. There's nothing sexy about looking at your dick and going, oh my God, get hard. I hate you, dick. Where did you go? <laughs> There's nothing sexy or empowering or affirming or loving about a partner who looks at somebody's dick that's gone south like that. Right. Anger and guilt and whatever, that has never given anyone a boner ever. Yeah, no, it's definitely not a aphrodisiac. No. So with your girl, if you continue to date this woman, like, this is what you need to know about me. It reminds me of calls I've had with, you know, women who've been sexually assaulted or raped, who are, you know, have insecurities and lasting damage from those experiences that they carry with them into a new relationship. And how do they process that with a new partner? Well, you kind of have to lay it out. You don't have to say, this is my life experience. This is something I bring to the table. Here's the minefield. Here, I have, I have worked with therapists. I've worked on myself. I know how to walk through this minefield without stepping on a mine. And I would like you to walk with me. I will show you where to put your feet so that neither of us is hurt. Now that, that is definitely meaningful advice too, because that's always been a big thing that I've, I've wondered, like, should I wait? Should I be upfront with it? So I, I'm definitely going to take that with me. You should, um, from you should policies, yeah. absolutely be upfront with it and be, and do that from an empowered place, not a cringing uh, place of, you know, not a defensive crouch. Right, empowered right. place. It's just like telling somebody you have HIV. It's just like telling somebody you've had, you know, a sexual assault in your, in your past, telling somebody this one thing about you, even as colossal a thing as this is, tells them one thing about you. Their reaction tells you everything that you need to know about them. If you share this information with someone and she's like, I can't deal and what the fuck and I am out of here, you have spared yourself from a worse experience with that person. You've spared yourself from being yeah. in a relationship with that person. You've spared yourself from her having that reaction during sex or during some other emotional or, or relationship conflict where hearing that would have been much more traumatizing for you. You don't want to use it as a weapon to push people away and to, 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 to throw them out. You don't want to use it as a bludgeon. You just want to, from a calm place, lay this out and say, I'm a good person. I think you're a great person. I, I would love to explore a relationship with you. This is, these are some facts about me that you need to know. I'm not a weepy bag of slop. I'm, I've had the therapy. I've worked with this. I, I know, like the, my, the metaphor for me that always works, it's a minefield, but here's the map. And we can walk through this minefield and never, ever ex hit a mine. We don't have to, ex we're not going to explode. But here's my map. And if you, if that doesn't look like a path you want to take, then we're not, we're not going to be good together.
Okay, yeah, I think that's uh, that's great. I really appreciate the advice on that. You're welcome, man. I am so sorry. And your mother, is she still mm-hmm. a part of your life? Did she come back from this psychic break? You know, I wish, honestly, I wish she was, because later in life now where I'm at, even as traumatic as it was, I, I feel like I could have eventually been in a place where I could have forgiven her, depending on, you know, the way things went. But unfortunately now, like, after she um, she attacked me, she kind of left me there, and she went into another room, and then she killed herself. Oh my God, I am so so sorry. Um, Not yet. I've definitely, uh, like through the years, I've been able to accept it more, and a lot of times, like I feel like other people are more surprised by it, and that's why I've been a little nervous, and you know, about necessarily being upfront with it, because for me, like I felt like in a lot of ways, maybe not as much sexually, but. In a lot of other ways, like emotionally, I've been able to deal with it and accept it. But yeah, um, for other people, I feel like it can be can be a bit of a shock. I think. And so, no, I definitely appreciate um, that, though. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about everything that happened for you. I'm so impressed at how together and whole you sound now. All Thank the uh, all the work you've done the it's tremendous. It's a testament to your, your inner strength. And I'm frankly just in admiration of you right now. That means a lot coming from you. And I just want to say as well that, you know, your, your show, I've been a listener for a while now and uh, it really helps me just in general. Like I laugh, you know, I cry sometimes listening to it and, you know, I just a lot of emotions and it's just, a, it's a really beautiful thing. So I appreciate you, um, you doing it. And uh, I always look forward to hearing you uh, every week. Well, thanks. <laughs> It's weird when people thank me for it because I always the Catholic schoolboy in my head is like, but you get paid for it. It's not altruism. So <laughs> I, I cop to that that it's my job, but uh, I appreciate yeah. very much hearing from you that you think I do it well. Definitely. Good luck with this new relationship. All right, Dan. Thanks for calling. Hi, Dan, and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. I am a 24-year-old lady up in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm calling in regards to a situation concerning my best friend who lives in Southern California. And I only mention that because Southern California is a relatively conservative area where everyone has their church and she is very much in that. So my question is how to handle this situation. We've been best friends since she was 13, since we were 13. And she's been with the same guy since she was 17. And now she's 24, and they're talking about getting married. They've been talking about getting married forever. They're very much, like, in the church, trying to do the traditional Christian good thing of, like, being with one person, and and she feels like they are meant to be together. Um, the only problem is he doesn't really seem to be interested in being with her and has said so on many occasions and, like, tried to break up with her and... She just keeps digging her heels in further and saying that she sees him in her future and she thinks that, you know, God has, like, put them on this earth to be together and he is staying for some reason. I'm not very close with him anymore. And um, furthermore, her parents are have never really liked this guy and now they're saying they're not going to go to her wedding They've prevented her from moving in with him just by saying that they don't support it and she doesn't want to rock the boat too much. And me, as well as, like, our other best friend, 
we really don't support the relationship either just because we want we want more for her. We want her to be with somebody that wants to be with her. And now what it's come to is this friend has said they're going to get married in January. She hopes I will be there. And she just sent me a text this morning saying that her parents are not going to come to her wedding. So she's looking to me for moral support. And I don't support this wedding. I don't think she should get married. And I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should keep my mouth shut and be the supportive friend and be the one person in her life that's going to, like, be there for her on her special day. Or if I should tell her, like, wake the fuck up. You need to realize that nobody is supporting this marriage. Nobody is supporting this relationship. And you keep digging your heels into something that is total bullshit. So get out now. Perhaps you should call your friend and tell her to Google Anna Duggar. She's Josh Duggar's now long-suffering wife, mother of Josh Duggar's four children. I'm sure Anna felt that they were destined to be together, that this was what God wanted, and all the rest of that horseshit. And if this is what God wanted for Anna Duggar, God is an asshole don't think it's what God wanted for Anna Duggar. I don't think God, if he exists and he doesn't, involves himself in our mate selections. Really don't. I really think that working out particle physics and keeping the universe humming along requires all of his attention, if he exists, which he doesn't. You speak your piece. That's your job as a friend when someone's about to get married, even if it means putting the friendship on the line. You speak your piece if you think someone's making a terrible terrible mistake. Obviously, this girl has heard it from her parents, from other friends. Perhaps she needs to hear it from you too. Maybe it needs to be unanimous before she comes to her senses. The person I would really like to talk to myself is her titular fiance, this guy who you say has tried to break up with her, but she digs her heels in and refuses to allow him to break up with her, that she's going to force this asshole that nobody likes to marry her against his will? How does that work? A breakup is not by mutual consent. A breakup does not require the other person's assent. Call him and say, this is a mistake and you know it. Everybody knows it. You don't want to be with her. You have tried to leave her in the past. Is it the God zap? Is her pussy made of solid gold? What the fuck is going on? Why won't you do for her what all of us wish she would do to you? Why won't you dump her and let her stay fucking dumped? If it's the God talk that's putting the zap on his head, well, I don't know what you do about that. When people really are wrapped up in their ideas of what their very special imaginary friend wants for them, it can be very hard to make that person be rational about any of that because that is fundamentally fucking batshit and completely goddamn irrational. Be rational about this, but I can't. My imaginary friend said, wants this for me. And how do you know that? Because my imaginary friend whispered it to me in the middle of the night in a dream. Or if you read this parable in this particular way with this spin and interpretation and waka waka woo, What do you do with that? After a while, after you've spoken your piece, after you've risked the friendship, you back slowly out of the fucking room. 
all right, if she goes ahead and marries this guy, despite your giving him a call, despite your risking your friendship and telling her how you really feel, what do you do? Do you show up on that special day? Yeah. I think you err on the side of showing up on your friend's special self-emoliation wedding day. Yes, you do. Unless they're doing something completely insane. Who knows? Maybe healing waters pour from her pussy like the spring at Lourdes and she will fix him. Maybe being married will make him the husband that nobody anticipates he'll become. Highly unlikely, but maybe. So you show up in that hope. Unless... She is a woman with three small children, and he is an unreformed, unrepentant child molester. It really has to rise to the point of you are marrying someone who is going to destroy you and the people around you, and that is unfair to everyone. And so I, in protest, am not going to smile on this. I'm not going to participate in your self-delusion and allow you to interpret my presence as some sort of approval of your choice or evidence that you're making a wise choice. But if he's just an asshole, if people didn't go to the weddings of people who were marrying assholes, a great many weddings would be deserted. If he's a destructive, harmful force, then you don't go. But you can show up at the wedding of a friend who's marrying somebody you wished they weren't marrying to be supportive. And then it gives you the street cred, come the time, to look them in the eye and say, I've loved you, I've stood by you, but I fucking told you so. Now, just like I showed up for your wedding, I'm going to show up for your court dates as you get a divorce. Hi, this is in response to the caller who doesn't like the taste of cum or the feel of it in her mouth and when she gives blowjobs. It's not like spitting the semen out if you let it dribble out in a really sexy way, either back over his penis or down your face, um, show it it on your tongue. You can do a lot that's very sexy and kind of almost corny, and it still doesn't mean you have to swallow it, doesn't mean that you have to, I, I find, I like, actually, I swallow and come, but it burns my throat a little bit, depending on how acidic it is, and it's definitely not just an acquired taste, but an acquired texture, I think, so you can sort of hold it in your mouth, and then let it come back down, you can hold it, you can ask him to give you a facial, if that doesn't bother you, and at the last second, he pulls out, and gives you that you know, facial and that takes care of it. Or you can ask him to let to come on your breast if you like that. And again, the last minute he pulls out and finishes on your breast. There's lots of very sexy ways to keep it not just, ooh, yuck, I hate your cum, let me spit it out, but to not have to swallow semen if it's not your thing. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to your advice you gave to the guy who wanted to have an affair in episode 464. And there seems to be a kind of paradox where you tell him to find someone who will let him practice his risky behavior. But it seems part of an affair would be not having permission. As soon as you have permission, it's not really risky or dangerous or exciting anymore. Uh, As someone who does have these sorts of tendencies, I found myself losing interest in the idea as soon as someone says, sure, sleep with anyone you want, then I don't really want to anymore. It's not risky anymore. I just don't know how you reconcile these two things of wanting to practice some risky behavior, but not wanting to hurt people and finding someone that's uh, compatible in that way. Hey, Dan, uh, in regards to uh, episode 464, where there's a gentleman who uh, wanted to have one last fling 
what if she became part of the fantasy? So she could dress up, wear something else. He could arrange to meet her at a bar, and uh, he can go home with, quote, another woman and have a fun fantasy with her. Just a thought. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Cynthia Graham on Twitter at CYGram underscore Graham. And follow Mike Pearl on Twitter at Mike Lee Pearl. And please, again, do not call it Mike Pearl Syndrome. we got to come up with something better. Speaking of Twitter, B. Jaker at B. Jakery tweets falling in love with the Savage Lovecast, which is lovely because we are falling in love with you, B. Jaker. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy and our big box of Nature Box Snacks. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.